My name's Gareth. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch. Um, just a quick thing before I get into the sermon. If you're using um, the Microsoft Translator app, I think a few of us uh, have been starting to use that to trial it. I've got the code for you if you'd like to, um, to take that down. And this is for anyone who would like to um, uh, be able to read along. It translates um, very accurately into the language of your choice. Um, so the code is, um, I don't know if we can get this up on the screen, but it's Y-R-E-D-Z. That's Y-R-E-D-Z. Uh, and it's a Microsoft Translator app. And if you haven't got it and like to get it, um, we can show you after, and we'll, um, we'll try to keep using it for the next few weeks uh, and see if that helps. Uh, Y-R-E-D-Z. We're in Isaiah 36. We're in Isaiah 36. In 1960, 10 million people went to church. 10 million people went to church in 1960 in this country. That's about a third of the population. That's quite a lot, isn't it? A third of the population. One in three people you'd bump into into town would go to church. 50 years later, it was down from 10 million to about five and a half. It had halved by 2010. And the UK's population had actually increased during that time. So now only 11% of people went to church. And that was over a decade ago, and it hasn't really got better, has it? People are leaving church. People are leaving church. I just realized I'm not turning the app on. Hopefully that's now working. Thank you. People are leaving church. Why? And maybe quite importantly too, does it even matter? Maybe um, you've been coming to church for many years, and you're feeling a bit tired of the whole thing. You're wondering... Do I need church anymore? I've paid my dues. I did a lot of serving back in the day. But now it's time to enjoy life somewhere else. Uh, maybe you're a teenager, and it feels like you've been coming to church for absolutely ages. It, maybe it's been for the whole of your lifetime. And as you uh, make plans for the future, you're starting to wonder what part church would play in the future for you, if any. Or maybe you're not a Christian. You're here investigating Christianity. And if that's you, you're really welcome. It's great to have you here. Someone might ask you, if they find out you went to church today, why join a sinking ship when the rats are going out? Can't you find anything else better to do? Well, this morning in Isaiah 36, we're going to see how God's people were tempted to leave God behind. They were tempted to leave God behind. And as we see that, we'll see that the tactics used to tempt them are the tactics being used to tempt us today. And having identified that link between then and now, we'll see how we might equip ourselves, arm ourselves, to stand strong in the face of those who would draw us away. And that will include, for those of us uh, particularly who don't know where we stand with God, seeing why it's far better to be with God not just in church, but be with God than it is to be with anyone else. Okay, let's get up into the passage. Um, and we're going to break it into three. It'll be up on the screen. We have a standoff between Assyria and Judah. Verses one to three, we have the setup for the standoff. Uh, then we have the speaking part of the standoff in verses four to 12. And then the shouting part of the standoff in 13 to 22. Uh, we'll see that as we go in. Uh, let's get into that first bit, the setup for the standoff, verses one to three. <clears throat> 
Isaiah 36 on page 720. Just how does it pick up? In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. And then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. All right, let's hit pause there. Up on the screen, here's a map of what's going on. Uh, now you can see three kingdoms highlighted there. Assyria, Israel, and Judah. Uh, one of them is a teensy-weensy bit bigger than the other two, as you can see. The Assyrians were the superpower. Uh, and um, Isaiah, as we move on, Isaiah was writing uh, his book, his prophecy, between 740 and 700 B.C. These dates are approximate, but that's, um, that's roughly when Isaiah was writing his prophecy. Uh, and then the next arrow we'll see um, that in 720 B.C., Assyria attacked Israel, the northern kingdom. Assyria attacked Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. Uh, and then they took them into captivity, and the nation was never seen again. There is no northern kingdom uh, of Israel anymore. Uh, then, um, in, here in Isaiah 36, Assyria moves into the southern kingdom, into Jerusalem. And they reach the gates about 701 BC. They've captured the fortified cities. You see that. There's other strongholds around. And um, the king of Assyria sends his field commander, verse 2. Uh, the text actually uses the, um, the title of the field commander, which is the Rabshakeh, which is a cool name, isn't it? Rabshakeh. So I'm going to use that from now on, because field commander sounds a bit bland. And he's frightening the Rabshakeh. He's frightening. He comes with a large army. It's not just him. Do you see that? The details there. He comes with a large army. But he hasn't come to fight. He hasn't come to fight, yet he comes with a large army. Because he's not come to fight with swords. He's come to fight with his words. He has come to persuade. He has come to persuade. The large army is very persuasive. Have you ever faced a large army? <laughs> I haven't, but I don't want to. And the Assyrians were famously, hideously brutal. Uh, we know from uh, what, historical studies um, that the Assyrians, when they captured cities, they absolutely they tortured the inhabitants. So they took Lachish, uh, as we've seen um, here. They moved from Lachish to Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The siege ramp is still standing at the, uh, the ruins of Lachish that the Assyrians built to go up into the city over the walls. Um, but what, they found, uh, what we found out the Assyrians uh, did, uh, one thing they would do is they would impale people. So they would get into the city, and then they would get people and put them onto a wooden spike through their ribcage, whilst they're still alive. And they do it in public. Don't stand up against Assyria. Uh, for the leaders, they had a particularly unpleasant thing. They would cut strips of skin off, and whilst the person's still alive, tear those strips of skin off. Don't mess with Assyria. If you stand up to us, this is what's going to happen to you. Leaders, what are you going to decide? What would you do if you were a leader in a city with the Assyrian army approaching? What would you do? Many cities just surrendered on sight because they knew how horrible it would be if Assyria got in. And Assyria probably would. And so the Rabshakeh stands with this huge army, but he's come to persuade, not to fight with swords. And so um, Hezekiah, you see in verse 3, then sends three of his palace officials Hezekiah doesn't send warriors. He sends administrators and bureaucrats to try and have this conversation. And that's the setup. Thank you. If we move on to the next, uh, next slide. Oh, actually, this is one thing I forgot. In the British Museum, you can see reliefs. Um, if we can zoom in on this. These are something the Assyrians put together of their destruction of this city of Lachish. 
So if you want to go to the British Museum, you can see this, another historical record that goes alongside the Bible. Uh, and these are pictures and there are inscriptions. Uh, this one's of the king saying, go and, go and slaughter the people. That was the king of Assyria. He's very proud of it. He's displayed that and you can go and see it if you like. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll move on now. So that's the setup of the standoff. Everything's in place. Uh, then we come on to the um, other two parts of the, uh, the passage. We have speaking and then shouting. Uh, maybe you notice as it was read uh, that the Rabshakeh is speaking in Hebrew. Do you get that in verse 11? They say to him, the officials say to him, don't speak to us in Hebrew, because he was. He say, we don't, they're saying, we don't want everyone on the walls to hear. What we, let's have a private conversation, okay? Don't let the people on the walls hear. But he says, actually, I want them to hear verse 12, and then verse 13 underlines it. Then the Rabshakeh stands and calls out, still in Hebrew. He shouts out then, still in the language of the people. It's not his own language. He's speaking the language of the people. He's come to threaten and to tempt. So they hear him speak, and then they hear him shout. Let's get into the first half, then, the speaking. Um, I left my cup of water somewhere, so if someone wouldn't mind just getting me a cup of water, that would be uh, very appreciated. All right, let's bring up, we've got a table here, because the Rabshakeh uses a number of different tactics, and we'll go through quite quickly. The first tactic he uses is reason and arguing from their mistakes. That's in verse 6. They made a mistake, the people of God. They depended on Egypt, who were not strong enough. Hysteria had beaten them. And the Rabshakeh says, it's like leaning on a staff that goes into your hand, like a walking stick, thank you, with a sharp point. What a mistake that was. That was a mistake of the people. They shouldn't have done that. It wasn't uh, good military thinking, and it definitely wasn't good theological thinking, because they had turned to Egypt even though God said, don't do that, even though God said, trust in me. So the first thing that Rav Shaka does is point out their actual mistakes. Uh, the second thing he does, using um, reason again, is he uses logic. Uh, verse 7. He points out the fact that, hang on, you, Hezekiah says he worships God, but he's taken away the high places and altars that are for God. So logically, Hezekiah doesn't even really like God anyway. See the logic? You worship this God, you've taken away his altars, that must have been a bad thing, so you don't like God. And what the Rabshakeh does there, he uses logic, not the Bible. Because we might imagine, yes, all gods want as many altars as possible. But the God of Israel said, worship me in the place I put my presence. They were not supposed to have these high places, and so Hezekiah had done the right thing. But the Rabshakeh twists that. He says, reason, if you were listening in, I think, yeah, that's right, isn't it? Huh. These people in Jerusalem are pretty hypocritical. Uh, he then changes tack, verse 8. Mockery. Do you get this? This is sarcastic. I don't know if you like sarcasm, but this is pretty sarcastic. Come now. Let's make a deal. Tell you what. I'll give you thousands of horses. 2,000 horses. <laughs> Can you find anyone to ride them? All these horses, not a single rider. The cavalry was an, uh, an innovation that time in warfare. And Judah just didn't have any cavalry. Did not, didn't have any, it's like someone saying, here's 2,000 tanks to a country that has never had tanks. How do you drive them? I don't, I don't even know what the thing looks like. Is it this? Is it that? He mocks the people. We've got this incredible technology. You don't even know how to use it, even if you had it. He mocks them, verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10 doubt. Have I come to attack and destroy this land without God? No, the Lord told me. I'm here doing God's work. 
Maybe he is. Maybe we should give it. What the Rabshakeh does here is he mixes truth with a lie. Truth and lie. Rarely, I think, do people outright lie because it's too obvious. You get a big slice of truth and then just enough lie, the lie you're trying to sneak in. Because the truth was that God was coming in judgment on the people. On the northern kingdom, Assyria had come. And actually, God said earlier in Isaiah that the floodwaters of Assyria would reach up to the neck of Jerusalem. He said this would happen. He said they would get this far. But he did not say that the Assyrians would destroy Jerusalem. That's the lie. He has not come by God's word to destroy the city. Truth mixed with lie. But with so much truth in there, tempted to believe him and give in. And then finally, threat. <laughs> um, last week, uh, someone mentioned that the uh, description of vomit on the tables was a little bit graphic. Well, we had vomit last week. Uh, and in the passage today, end of verse 12, eating your own excrement. I don't have to draw your picture. That's revolting. Drinking your own urine. That's what happens in a siege. If we were penned in here, we'd run out of food pretty quickly and then we get desperate. And we might think, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. People do anything to stay alive. This is what the threat was. There would be this siege. People would be forced to do that for themselves, for their children, for their loved ones. And then Assyria would come in, and it would get worse. Can you feel the threat? Can you feel that threat? Could you imagine people in the wall saying, let's give in? speaking. The Rabshakeh speaks these things. Okay, let's move on to the second half where he starts shouting from verse 13 onwards. Now he starts shouting. Look at what he does. He draws a simple choice between Hezekiah and the king of Assyria. Uh, do you notice um, what it says um, about the king of Assyria? How, how he describes him? He says, hear the words of the great king the king of Assyria. Makes him out to be amazing. What does he say about Hezekiah? What does he call Hezekiah? Just Hezekiah. Doesn't even give him his title. The Rabshak is saying, look at this mighty king of Assyria. <laughs> look at this guy. Who are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose? And he keeps drawing this uh, through the great king, the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria, Hezekiah. The king of Assyria, my master, he makes it really clear that the choice is between someone really powerful and someone really weak. And then we get to the heart of it. I think Sarah read it perfectly, verse 16 and 17. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to him. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me and I'll give you everything you need. Do you see that? It's appeal. Come. I think it's very instructive what the Rabshakeh has shouted about, what he has spoken about, and what he has been silent about. He has been silent about the barbarism. He doesn't say, once we get in, this is what we're going to do to you. He hasn't said that at all. They know it, but he hasn't said that. And he speaks, they do hear on the walls, but he speaks about threat and argument and mockery. But when he shouts, what does he say? Come, come, 
He appeals. He appeals. He separates them from Hezekiah. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you. Don't let him trick you. Don't let him brainwash you. I've got the truth, and I'm here for your good. I uh, don't know if you know, uh, familiar with the tactic, good cop, bad cop. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know if anyone's actually had that done to them. Maybe you've seen it in a, pr uh, a program. Good cop, bad cop is very simple. You have two policemen trying to get a confession out of a suspect, and one of them's a bad cop, and he slams his fist on the table and says, you did it, you better confess, and he shines the light in their eyes, and he's shouting, and he's raging, and he's getting so close. He's the bad cop, and the suspect hates that. But then the other cop says, Jim, give us a minute. Give us a minute. Come on, mate. It's been tough. We know it's tough, right? We understand. They were asking for it. Why don't you just tell us what happened? Who gets the confessions? Good cop. I don't want the bad cop. Yeah, I'll talk to you. And the rabshaker, he plays that. The bad cop is absolutely there. If we get in, we will slaughter you. That's the bad cop. But he plays good cop. Come. Come. Come to me. Well, before we might be taken in by the rabshakeh, we get to the truth of the matter. Verse 18, halfway through, he reveals his hand. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? And then, verse 20, who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? It's now out in the open. Assyria aren't from the Lord. The Rabshakeh, he's against God. How can God save you from my hand? How could he save you from my hand? God can't give you what you want. That is what his appeal is based on. God can't give you what you want. He can't save you. Only I can save you. Only I can rescue you. If you've been coming in, in our Isaiah series... What have we seen over and over again? What's our headline been? God is great and God is good. He is great, high and lifted up, and he is good. He is God of truth and justice and love and beauty. Where does the Rabshakeh focus his attack on when he shouts? He says, God is not great. God is not great. He cannot save you. Don't listen to Hezekiah who tells you this. Don't get saddled with a weak, pathetic God. And the Rabshakeh shouts, God is not good. God is not good. He deprives you of the best things. He's going to give you excrement and urine. I'm going to give you your vine and fig tree and corn, vineyards. God is not good. He does not care about you. I do. That my friends, is the heart of the Rabshakeh's attack. God is not great and God is not good. Leave the Lord. Leave the Lord. The thing is, if God's people know the truth of this, that God is great and God is good, they can survive mockery. They can survive argument and threat. But if we lose our hold on either of these two points of faith, that God is good, that he is for us, or that God is great, he is able to save us, if we lose hold of either of those, it's open season. It's open season. The question hangs over the whole standoff to God's people. Will you leave the Lord? 
Will you leave the Lord? Come to me. Leave him. Now, the people's response is very interesting. We won't um, look at it very much now. We'll pick it up next week as we go into chapter 37. But let's look at verse 21. They remained silent and said nothing in reply. That's interesting, isn't it? They say nothing in the face of these threats and these persuasions. And then uh, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, they go to Hezekiah. They don't leave Hezekiah. They go to him with their clothes torn. They're in great distress. But they do not leave their post. And so the question is, how might we imitate them? As God's people, how might we be like that? What lessons are there for us today from this passage? Because the Rabshakeh is long dead. He is long dead, but his tactics live on. They're alive and well in Harpenden right now. Come to me, says the Rabshakeh. Leave the Lord. Leave Jesus. That is the appeal of the world to you this morning. Leave Jesus. Or even don't join him if you're thinking about it. Leave the Lord. Now, I did talk about church at the beginning. Church and Jesus are not the same thing, okay? But they are linked. And we might be able to see a pattern as more and more people leave church. That is, more and more people walking away from the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Let's get up on the screen then. Uh, the table again. All right, so that's what the Rav Shaka did. He used these. How might the world use these things now? How might they use uh, reason, logic, mistake? What mistake has the church made? Well, quite a lot, actually. Maybe one in this country, relying on tradition. We're okay. We've got the Church of England. It's intertwined with the state. We'll be fine. And now we see, hmm, it's not as strong. We've relied on tradition. We've relied on maybe in Harpenden being quite a nice, middle-class kind of place that feels quite Christian. Lots of people are connected to church or have been to church. It's fine. But the world can say, with good, logic, with good reason, you've lent on the wrong thing. That's not going to sustain you. Then how might they put logic over Scripture? How might they put logic over Scripture? Here's one way. God's a God of love, Right? And love means doing what everybody wants, saying yes to everything. You don't say yes to everything, so you don't even love this God that you say you do. It sounds very persuasive, doesn't it? It's a point of logic. But it's putting above Scripture a human way of thinking, what love truly is, what the right way to worship God is. That's another way that the um, world might speak to us. Then mockery. You mocked for being a Christian? If you're a teen at school, you said anything about going to church, let alone saying, I'm a Christian. Going to church because my parents take me, that's one thing. But saying, I'm a Christian, you know what it is to be mocked, to be frozen out, to be laughed at if you stand up and give the notice about the CU. What about in your workplace? It's maybe not as overt there, but maybe it is. I remember telling one guy I went to church, he just said, no. And just in that one word, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. What do you do that for? It wasn't someone I work with now, by the way, at church. <laughs> Mockery. It's effective. Leave Jesus. You don't want to put up with this, do you? We'll mock you until you get back in line. What about doubt about God's will? God's changed. God's changed. Yeah, the Bible was written a while ago and it was useful then, but God's changed his mind. Hasn't he? God's always changing. 
Isn't God alive now? Doesn't God speak today? What is he saying new that's different? How might you be different? How might you leave that old book behind? Oh yeah, God is alive. He is speaking today. Maybe we need to change. Threat. Threat. Bad reputation. You know that there are certain friends that if you bring up Christian things with one more time, they're not your friend anymore. Or your family member doesn't want to come to visit you. Definitely don't want to come at Christmas because they know you might invite them to the Christmas service and they hate that. A threat. Friendships. Job prospects. There are people here who've been held back because they stood up for Jesus at work. It's a threat. And that's just here. As we thought about recently about the persecuted church, the threat is far greater for them. The threat is there. Leave the Lord. Leave Jesus. Do you recognize any of those? Do you experience any of those in your life? The Rabshakeh's tactics uh, are alive and well. And then what about the heart of the thing? God is not great. Lots of people believe that. God is not great. One way they might say it is this. Sure, God used to be great. When we needed the crutch of faith, God was greater than us. But now look what we can do. Have you any idea what they can do in hospitals? Have you checked out AI? We are greater than God. We don't need him anymore. God is no longer great. We are. Trust in ourselves. And God is not good. That's an easy one to see and an easy one to feel ourselves. If God is so loving, why do so many migrants drown in cold waters? If God cares, why did he take away that special person? If God is for us, why does my Christian life feel like a miserable duty, like a heavy burden? Do you feel those? Sometimes? What does it look like to start leaving Jesus? What does it look like to start leaving, listening to these well, for many of us, I imagine, it's more likely to be a drift than a decision. Like a boat that just unties its rope from the side. Just a drift. Maybe it begins with being a bit embarrassed about Christian things. Apologizing for Christians. But never saying anything for Jesus. Changing the subject if someone says, oh, what do you think? You go to church, what do you think? Oh, that's very difficult, very difficult. Uh, maybe. Maybe it's edging away. It could be as simple as, um, yeah, church every week. And then at some point in your life, yeah, church most weeks. And then church some weeks. Then church when I, I've not got anything else on. Then church never. That is a drift that many people go through. It's not inevitable. But maybe that's what it looks like for some. Or maybe it's our dreams that drift. Maybe you used to dream of being fired up for Jesus and living for him your whole life. Going out to change the world for the good of the gospel, for Jesus' glory and the good of the people you, you reach to. That used to be your dream. And somehow along the way, it's been changed. And now you dream of retiring early <laughs> to play golf. Or that your kid would go to a top university. And that's, that's your, that's your all-consuming passion. Or that you just have a quiet, easy life. That's what it might start like, start, uh, look like to start leaving Jesus. 
Okay. Should we? Should we stay with Jesus? Golf's fun. Should we stay with Jesus? You can be a Christian and play golf, by the way, just in case that wasn't clear. Um, Let's not sugarcoat it. Staying with Jesus and following him is really difficult. It's really difficult to stay with Jesus. And we kid ourselves and we set ourselves up to be tempted when we think otherwise. Because what does Jesus himself say? If anyone, if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross. Take up their cross. The Assyrians have invented a crucifixion. Might not surprise you to learn. And Jesus says, take up your cross. A brutal public execution. Take up your cross. Follow me. The Bible tells us to grow through our suffering. I don't want to grow through suffering. I want to grow through having lions. The Bible says we go through our suffering. It produces perseverance, hope, and faith. The Bible is full of lament. We cry out, why is it like this, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? Please take this away, Lord. And sometimes there are answers, but many times there are not. It's tough following Jesus. So why do it? Why bother? Does it matter? Two things I want to tell you. Firstly, where else do we go? Whom are you going to trust in, if not Jesus? Where is Assyria now? I had to show you on a map. Rabshak is gone. No one's clamoring for the return of that empire. It's gone. Its promises were empty. Do you see that? Its promises were empty. And although it's been replaced by other empires, the new ones aren't really any better. Do you think the world's getting better? Do you think it's getting better? And if it was, wouldn't everyone be really happy? You know, when spring's here, like, oh, it's good. Spring's great and summer's even better. People feel good in spring. But it doesn't feel like the spring of history, does it? I think gloom and mistrust and despair are the emotions of the day. That's what the world has. Is that where we want to go? More importantly, why stay with Jesus? Why come to him in the first place, if that's what you're thinking about? Because Jesus is great, and Jesus is good. Jesus is the one who punctures doubt. As we've been seeing in the last few weeks in our short series, hearing God's voice and obeying it, Jesus has come to teach us. The word of God made flesh. He says, this is how you live. Follow me follow my teaching. I will be with you always. Jesus is the power of God, the greatness. Jesus, if you read his life story, he calmed the storm by speaking to it. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. And Jesus is the goodness of God. He is the love of God incarnate. Jesus would die on a cross himself. He would follow his own word. He would take up his cross. And he would be impaled, brutally, publicly tortured in our place because he loves us. And as we saw in Isaiah a few weeks ago, 
Jesus is the one who now stands on the mountain of the Lord, preparing a table for you. That is what is your next thing. That's where you're heading. It is tough following Jesus. And yet, he's everything we need. That's why we stay with him. That's why we stay with Jesus. What does it look like to stay with Jesus? What does it look like in practice? Just choosing each day to stick with him. We make daily choices. And in a sense, it's a spiritual plodding. Wake up today, Jesus or the world? Jesus. Not going to be easy, but Jesus today. There are disciplines he has given us of prayer, of his word, of fasting, of church. It's a great thing to come together and be encouraged and also to encourage. I'm encouraged by seeing you. You encourage me by being here because you say, of all the things I could do, maybe not on a day like today, but of all the things I could be doing that are nice in the world, I've come here. That encourages me. I hope you are encouraged too as you look around. And together, let us remember that where we are is the best place. We are with God. We are in his love. That is where you are. You are in the love of God. And when you're in the love of God, why leave? Temptations, it is difficult, but there is nowhere better to be than with Jesus. You are with Jesus. If you are believing in him, you are with Jesus. And Jesus is with you right now. And because Jesus is with you right now, it's all good. It is all good because he is good. Your future is great because he is great. He will save you for everything. Jesus is great and Jesus is good. Let us stay with him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray just briefly that you would help us. For any thinking about Jesus and following him, I pray you might help them to see how wonderful he is, his love and his power. And I pray you would help them to decide to follow him, even starting today. And Father, for those of us who have already made that decision, please help us to go on making the decision. Strengthen us, we ask. We need your help. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.